I feel as if I should give a short word of explanation because I stand up here looking like a dummy. Uh, I've got a, a problem and I cannot sing. And I find it really difficult because I used to love to sing. And I'm, so when I'm standing there strumming with my mouth shut, it's not that I'm not praising God, it's that my me, me lungs will not let us. In fact, if there's any medical people around, it might be a good idea if they sat in the front row. <laughs> because this week, your speaker's got dodgy lungs, and the speaker next week, well, his heart keeps stopping. So uh, we might need some help. <laughs> the Lord blessed me with a hunger for his word. And I love it, I love to read it. But a book that's always been difficult, I've found difficult, is Isaiah. Because it's such a big one, probably, and most of it I found I didn't understand. But in the last couple of years, I've been coming to grips with it and, and learning more about Isaiah and... and uh, and the fact that it's a, it's a book absolutely overflowing with God's grace. So I thought we'd try, I would try, and uh, encourage you to be seeking in the book of Isaiah for his grace. I'll, a little bit of the, uh, some interesting facts that I've learned as I've been preparing for this week is that uh, this book of Isaiah has got 66 chapters in it, which is quite extensive. And we're going to be here a long time if I try and go through them. But it's interesting that the Bible has 66 books in it. In the first half of the Bible has 39 books in it. And Isaiah split in two halves. The first half has got 39 chapters. And the second half starts in chapter 40. And it starts with the words of a voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord just like Matthew's Gospel does. Isn't that interesting? The Old Testament is, a, is all about do this and you'll be blessed, do that and you'll not be blessed. And so is the, book of I, the first half of Isaiah. And then after chapter 40, in Isaiah, we start reading about promises about the coming Messiah. We read uh, about a suffering servant who's going to die and be risen to life and exalted. 
it, this, this, this Messiah is going to die for the sins of the people. And it's all in Isaiah. And it leads, it ends about the Messiah in, in chapter 52, where it says, you shall be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Talking to God's people, the Israelites. And then right at the very end in chapter 50, 65 of Isaiah, we read, Behold, I will create a new heaven and a new earth. And and, and gives you a summary of the book of Revelation. It's amazing. The whole of Scripture is in the book of Isaiah. Did you know that? I never knew that until very recently. It's, I think it's a book that I've neglected. And, and I suspect... A lot of other people haven't looked very deeply into it either, simply because it's such a huge thing, isn't it? And we tend to go for the passages that we like and we're familiar with, rather than start digging at breaking into the surface of other stuff. So I thought we'd just, for this week, I would pick out two or three chapters and, and we'll look at them a little bit closer. Not, not that you're going to learn much other than I hope whet your appetite so when you go home you'll get into it and you'll and you'll see and you'll see your messiah dying for you in the book of isaiah it's all about god's grace it's all about god's grace that uh, it highlights the fact that throughout history throughout history god is busy providing for his people, teaching them how to live according to his plan, exactly the same as he's doing to us today. A lot of the time, we don't even realise God's activity in our lives. We just do not appreciate how involved he is in every single part of our life. <coughs> There's a story about two fish. I may have told you this before, but I don't care because it's a good illustration. Two fish swimming along through the sea, not doing much, hardly speaking at all. And an old fish comes along the other way and looks at these two fish and he says, what's the water like back there? And these two fish just keep going. They don't speak to him. And they look at each other. And then one says to the other, what's water? <laughs> we can be like that with grace. Because we are actually swimming in God's grace. And we don't recognise it. We don't know it's there. Every move we take every corner we go around god is there supporting us with his love and his care god's grace it's just like water it's like the atmosphere we breathe verse one of chapter one we read The vision concerning Judah 
and Jerusalem that Isaiah son of Amos saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Which is very precise, because we know exactly when these people lived, and so we know exactly when Isaiah ministered and prophesied. It was between seven and six hundred years before Jesus. And it seems at this time the people hardly knew God at all. Just like those two fish. They had no idea that God was everywhere around them, supporting them and caring for them. In the next four verses, I'm going to read, begin to verse 2. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people, my people, do not understand. O sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption, they have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. God's people didn't know him. But God loved them too much to leave them in that condition. So, he sent the Assyrians, and we'll read about it in chapter 10. He sent the Assyrians to punish them. And then he used the Babylonians to carry them away into captivity. We'll read about that in chapter 39. And eventually when they are totally broken and defeated and humbled, he sends Cyrus of Persia to rescue them, a redeemer, if you like, a sort of Moses, to bring them, to, to release them from Babylon so they could go home to Jerusalem. And God's plan was that from this remnant, these few people who were left, because their numbers had decreased Massively when they were in Babylon. Humbled, contrite, broken in spirit. There, God decided he would grow a people. A people for him, a people of God. The Jews would be revived when Cyrus rescued them from Babylon. This whole process was designed in order to redeem his people, to bring them back to himself. It, it was God's grace, caring for them. I'm not going to let you get away. When our kids are naughty, we rebuke them. We don't let them get away with it. We want to draw them back. I'm still in chapter 1. In verse 10, it says, Here... The word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord, I have more than enough of burnt offerings, rams and fattened animals. I've got no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear me before me, who has asked this of you? 
this trampling in my courts. Stop bringing meaningless sacrifices. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations, I can't bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me, I am weary of bearing them. When you have spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash, make away, your, make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. De defend the cause, the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And then we read in verse 18, I think it's such a beautiful picture of God. Come now, come, let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. After all of this, God in his grace says, come, listen, listen to sense, sit down, with, let's talk together. Your sins can be washed away. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And eventually, they'd ended up in Babylon. Because for all of God's pleading, they still went on rebelling. Aren't we like the Israelites? I know I am. But eventually, as we've already looked, they were broken and they came home. And the whole of this time, God's purpose is to restore his people. It's not punishment, it's about restoration. They go through all sorts, they go through all sorts. It's to give them hope. Dave Wilson used to say that it's, we often see the God of the Old Testament as the God with the big stick. Do you remember that? But then he would say, God took the stick and broke it in two and made a cross of it and put the punishment on himself. It's a nice little, little story that I like it because it sums up our God. Isn't he a great God? He takes our punishment on himself. Recently, I got a message from a, a young bloke who's a, a Bible teacher, read, a preacher, and said, could I give him some advice? Me? 
I haven't seen them yet. I've just turned the phone up and make an arrangement to meet and we'll talk. He wants to uh, talk about the tabernacle. I think he maybe heard some tapes of me talking on the tabernacle some years ago. And uh, this bloke and his tablets, he drives him mad. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> I thought, well, you know, if you want to teach on a subject, you have to read the books and study and prepare. But it's got to be more than that, hasn't it? It's got to be a personal thing. If you want to be effective in your teaching, it's not like being a teacher and teaching maths. It's about talking about the relationship between you or me and our God. So if you haven't got that relationship yourself, you cannot teach it. You can teach the history, but you cannot teach about God's grace. You cannot teach about what God really means and who he is. <coughs> if I don't have a testimony, I've got nothing to bring. <coughs> sure, I can do some studying and talk about history around Isaiah's days, but it's not about that. That's just a way into God's heart for God to get into my heart. <clears throat> anyway, uh, I'm not looking forward to meeting this young man. I know him. He's a very friend, good friend, but I still don't relish the thought. Uh, however, Isaiah had a testimony. That's the point I'm trying to make. And we'll read about that in chapter 6, which I want us to look at now. I'm sure you're all familiar with the passage. And this is a story, this is Isaiah's testimony about how he met God in a new way for him. He was already a prophet. And we read in chapter 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, Each with six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongues from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord. Now we'll stop there. Yeah. We'll stop there for the day. See, this has touched your lips, your guilt 
is taken away and your sin atoned for. This vision had a profound effect on Isaiah. <clears throat> I don't think that previously he had realised just how holy and awesome and majestic a God he was really dealing with. This God was something awesome. And we forget that all too often. We are taught quite rightly Jesus is our brother. And we can be totally intimate with him and share all sorts, everything, our whole life. But when you work on that relationship, it's easy to forget that this is the God who created everything. This is the God who flung the stars in space. He knows how many they are. He named them all. He's not just a brother. He's king. He's God Almighty. He's huge. He's massive. And we so easily forget this in our peril as a, as a part in C.S. Lewis's book. It's uh, in, I think, the line in which the wardrobe where Lucy says to the badger, or whatever it is. But Aslan, isn't he dangerous? And the answer is, oh yes, <laughs> extremely dangerous. Because sometimes we just see God as an old man with a white beard and somebody whose lap we can sit in, which he, which he is. But he's also the master of the universe. He's also the mighty, a mighty God. And we forget that to, to our peril. And I think Isaiah saw this when he saw these seraphs or seraphim or whatever the title. The angels, absolutely beautiful creatures. And they had six wings and two, they used to hide their faces. And two, they used to hide their feet and the lower half of their body. And with two, they flew. And they praised God. Holy, holy, holy. This is what they did. And if you're reading Revelation, they're still doing it. <laughs> this is what they do. Why did they cover themselves up? Put themselves, make themselves out of heart, unseeable? Because they realised that they were really quite nice, beautiful looking creatures. But God is so much more that they did not want their beauty to detract anything from God. God was the one to worship. Don't look at me, look at him. That's what, that's what these seraphim were saying. And Isaiah had been a, one of these people who said, Woe is you, woe is you. And called other people and he did it off a pedestal. And if you read into the first five chapters, you'll see that Isaiah talks down to the people. But then when he gets this vision of God, what does he say? Woe is me. Woe is me. 
Listen, chapter 5. Woe to you who are house to house, verse 8. Verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning. Verse 18. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit. Verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, like us preachers. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. And then in verse 6, woe to me. Woe to me. He saw God as he truly is and recognised himself as he truly was. And he was shattered. Woe is me. If I haven't come to that place today, I need to. He'd been putting himself about telling everyone else how bad they were and suddenly it dawned on him <coughs> I'm no better myself God came into his life through that vision and showed him just exactly how useless he was his ministry had been as a prophet delivering God's word and showed him as a man of unclean lips. His lips, that's what he worked with, unclean. His service was unclean. His motives had been wrong, full of self-righteousness, self-effort, worrying, about what people think. You know, it's so difficult standing here because I come here thinking I've got to bring something fresh. I've got to bring something that nobody else knows so I appear good, so I appear better, if you like. And it's a natural drive in me to be good. Not for his sake, <laughs> for my reputation. I like reading Mark Twain for a bit of light entertainment. And one of the things he says was, I'd worry a lot, lot less about what other people think if I realised how seldom they did. He has some really clever little turns of phrase like that, and I, I like that, and that one's good for me. Because I do worry about what other people think. Isaiah enjoyed the position. He enjoyed the recognition that came when he be recognised as a poet, a, a poet, a prophet. 
But after he'd been humbled this way, his preaching took on a new dimension and vitality, starting from a position of weakness, because he'd seen himself as a sinner, speaking to people from experience, seeing. This is for you and me, this word. Isaiah's preaching from then was saying, I'm not just talking to you, I'm talking to me. Previously, he was saying, do what I do and you'll be all right. Big difference. Same message, different reason. And he wrote in chapter 57 of this book, that famous line, God is near to the humble and contrite. A young preacher can do nothing better than to learn that lesson. Because even the old ones have to keep on learning it again and again. It is a struggle. It is for me. The occasion of this vision was important to Isaiah as, to, as well. We'll read it there. It came in the year that King Uzziah died. You probably know that uh, the Old Testament, there was a good king who did very well, and then there was a bad king, and, this, and the Israelites suffered. And it went up and down and up and down, and God uh, blessed and punished, depending on how well they were, they were at the time. And Uzziah was one of the good guys. We read about him in chapter 26 of 2 Chronicles. Don't bother looking it up. I'll promise you it's NIV. I'm reading you direct out. It says, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And then he goes on to say, He, broke he went to war against the Philistines in verse 6 and broke down the walls of Gath. It says that the Ammonites brought tribute to Uzziah and his fame spread as far as the border of Egypt. And it goes on and on talking about all the good things that uh, Uzziah achieved. He dug many cisterns. He built towers in the towers in Jerusalem. They were built by Uzziah. Did you know that? Uh, and he had a well-trained army. He had 307,000 people in, in the army. And then we read in verse 16, but after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. And he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense. Azariah the priest, with 80 other courageous priests, confronted him and said, it's not right for you to do this. This is the work of the priests, the descendants of Aaron. Who have, been, who have been consecrated to do the job. Leave the sanctuary. You have been unfaithful and you will not be honoured by God. This is what they said to him. And Uzziah had the censer in his hand and he was ready to burn the incense and he became angry. Who are you to talk to me? I'm the king. And while he was raging at the priests in their presence, 
leprosy broke out on his forehead. And King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in a separate house. He was excluded from the temple. And Jotham, his son, had charge of the palace and governed the people in his, in his stead. It was when this king died that Uzziah saw the Lord. And Uzziah would be thinking, even, even one of our best, strongest kings cannot defy God. God is awesome. He's not to be denied. He's not, he's not to be messed with. What a holy God we're dealing with. It doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what our standing, God is not to be messed with. Uzziah thought he could do the job in his own strength. Self-effort. And Isaiah identified with that because that's what he'd been doing for the previous five chapters. He'd been bringing God's word to the people and delivering it and speaking and preaching and teaching and it had all been self-effort. And he saw how holy a God he was messing with and he said, woe's me. It's a humbling thing to come to that place. He was chuffed, quite chuffed about his ministry. And then when he realised that God wasn't very chuffed with it, <laughs> he took a bit of a dive. His lips were unclean. His words had come from an unclean heart. His motives were self-centred. And I'm the same. I'm just the same. As I've already said, I, I try to find something new, something different, but there is nothing new. The gospel is the gospel. Jesus has done it all. We just need to remind ourselves of the old truths. The trouble is that we want the praise. We want the recognition. We want the pat on the back. It is so easy for self to creep in, even in this place. Am I driven by the Holy Spirit or by selfish reasons? Joan, sitting here, I know she won't mind, so I'll apologise after. I consider her one of the elders. And I've got a lot of respect for her. And last night, 
when we were coming back from church yesterday afternoon. She said, you're doing the Bible weeks this I was wanting to hear, Richard. <laughs> oh. And I was thinking, I was thinking to myself, this is great. June's here this week, she's going to hear me preach it. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I felt about that big. Afterwards, she did realise, I think, that uh, she deflated me slightly. So she came and said, really, it isn't Richard she wanted to hear, just what he's talking about, <laughs> which is great, which is great, because I want to hear what he's talking about as well. But you see, that's because I was wanting to impress Joan because of my respect for her. Is it me that's doing this? Or God's Holy Spirit through me? When you've got an attitude like that, you've got to wonder, haven't you? Anyway, praise the Lord, he helped me to repent. And uh, here we are. Do I get up in the morning with an agenda? <coughs> or do I seek God for his? Big question, that. Because I write myself notes the night before because I forget what my agenda is for the next day. If I don't, that's one of the joys of getting old. Am I trying to do God's work for him? By my own efforts? Am I chasing my own schemes? Has it got to be done by me? Because it's my plan? Or because I'm in charge? There are so many things where self creeps in to our ministry. And for me, uh, w as I've said, the biggest thing or one of the biggest things is reputation. I'm desperate to have a good reputation. It's such a proud attitude and such a hard one to shake off. I'm sure I've mentioned this on this platform in previous years, but it's still there. When Isaiah saw God high and holy and lifted up and he realised his service was tainted and he had allowed his own selfishness to taint his ministry, he saw his sin and he repented, woe is me, he said. And we read, and I'll read it again, verse 5. Woe is me, I am ruined. And I so identify with this. I must do. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. 
Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he took from the altar with tongues and touched my mouth. See, he said, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away. This is such a wonderful picture of the cross, of the Lamb of God who has been sacrificed on the altar. In order to take our sins away, in order to cleanse us and make us fit to serve him again. When we see God and recognize our own unworthiness and repent, the Holy Spirit comes and points us to the cross where the Lamb of God was slain for the judgment of our sins. And we can know God's forgiveness. And his word says, whom shall I send? And I said, here am I, send me. Amen. We're going to uh, go into groups now to share. We've got a good half hour. We'll be served with a cup of tea or coffee. Uh, we haven't, I've deliberately not written questions this year because sometimes I feel the questions get in the way and we feel we've got to get through all the questions. I think it's a time for sharing. It's a time for testimony. It's a time for being honest with one another. It's a time to bring testimony like I've just done. It's a time to uh, acknowledge our need.